Uh, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. I'm Kyle Dias. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our opening segment today is going to be uh, first online game. So, uh, uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead? You, you said you had a good pick for this. So I'm interested to hear what your first online game that you ever played was. I mean, I don't know if it's a good pick, um, but so back when our computer first got connected to the internet, um, everyone I knew had AOL, like I feel like how most households were. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I had both just a regular dial-up connection through whatever, not any sort of software um, like that, and I could just use Netscape Nav or I don't even think it was Netscape Navigator. Then it was just Netscape like Explorer. I feel like Explorer was there was another name for Netscape in the very early days before Navigator. Yeah, um, whatever it was called back then, and just I would go on the internet. Or alternatively, instead of AOL, we had the like I think of them as like who I forget where I read it read it, but they called like AOL and then. I had CompuServe. Mm-hmm. They called these like internet theme parks or amusement <laughs> parks because they kind of like just like put you in a nice little safe bubble mm-hmm. and have all the little things pre-designed with this U- UI for you to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I found, and they had like, and so CompuServe, which no one else had, <laughs> um, which is part of the reason why I think it went under. But like they had like a game section, like I'm sure AOL did. And within that game section, there were um, a bunch of uh, little online games. And what I played was called... Um, I remember the icon was like a uh, knight chess piece head, or okay. like a horse. And it was called British Legends. Okay. And as I later found out, it was its original name is uh, Mud or Multi-User Dungeon, and so it was one. It was like one of the first multi-user dungeons, which is like this. Uh, it's sort of like the precursor to massively multiplayer online RPGs, mm-hmm. except it's entirely text-based. Um, and so I played this text-based RPG in the mid '90s on my little computer when I was like <laughs> you know 10 years old or whatever. And, it, you know, it's like any other text-based RPG, except there are other people there. It's like, you type E and you go east. And, you know, it's like, grab stick. And, like, stick is now in your inventory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like a fantasy setting. And, uh, you know, there are wizards and dragons and knights and crap. And I just, um, I remember... I was terrible at the game. <laughs> you have to, like, as you do in games, you have to fight things to build experience to get stronger. Mm-hmm. But there was a, um, like, magic lake or stream. There's a, um, somewhere in, deep in a forest that you could drink from to get experience. Mm-hmm. And someone who was better at the game than me showed me where it was and then I eventually like memorized it um, so I could go back there and so but you can only get experience up to it to like a certain level like level like seven out of like 30 or whatever the game went to okay 
Um, but also, so if you like, you know, you type like drink river or whatever, you dr- mm-hmm. it's like you drink some of this magical water and you gain some experience. But then it also makes you sleepy. Mm-hmm. And so then like you sit there and like, it's like you try and do action, but instead you're just asleep. So what I would do was I would go there and then just like spam the command drink river mm-hmm. into the computer multiple times to just chain it up. You like... And but occasionally I would get attacked in the middle of this, uh, you know, stream. So it's like I'd already put in this command to drink from this river like twenty, fifty times, <laughs> trying to build experience my <laughs> shitty level one character up to whatever cap it could go to. And so and so I would just watch the text scroll by. It's like you drink from the river, you feel sleepy. Whatever you gain ten experience. You drink from the river, you feel sleepy. You gain ten experience. It's like you've been attacked by like. I don't know, some sort of goblin or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the goblin hits you for three damage. You drink from the river and you fall asleep. You gain ten experience. It's like, the goblin hits you for eight damage. You drink from the river, you fall asleep. You gain ten experience. I'm just like, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so like the game kept track of where all of these different players were in this like virtual world that you're all stumbling around in because it's all text-based and you're just saying like north, south, like, you know, walk in these different directions. And so yep. you, occasionally you would find other players inside of the world? Like, is that how this worked? Yep. That's insane. Um, and, you know, you, like, type, like, like, uh, there'd be, like, you know, like, basic whisper command or, like, the shout command or whatever to just mm-hmm. talk to people. Like, shout hello, and then you just say hello in, like, the room and whoever can hear you, like, you know, if you were in the same room, they'd be like, you hear someone say hello, or whatever. Wow, by the time you played this game, Ryan, at least according to this Wikipedia article, by the time the game was licensed to CompuServe and renamed British Legends, it was almost uh, 15 years old. Oh, yeah. Like, its release date was in the 70s. And then it looks like by the time you would have been playing it, it was maybe closer to 20 years old. Probably about, yeah. That's crazy. Huh. And I remember so and like like any real um I guess, you know, MMO like when you die, your character is dead and you just have to make a new one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I don't want to say any MMO. I take that back cuz I think in, in them now you can do whatever, but as as a kid, that was my first experience with I think basically having to start over mm-hmm. and um, I was used to, you know, being able to save progress mm-hmm. and come back to it. Yeah. Like, if you die, like, you have some sort of those, you could ostensibly have some sort of save file. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just, like, because I, I didn't play, like, super old games that always are. But so it was very frustrating as a kid. Because, like, <laughs> like, when I, you died, you just were dead forever. Like, you had to go like, all the way back to the beginning. I would be, like, I would build up my shitty character, and I would survive my stupid attempts to drink from that lake up to level 8 or whatever it was and then I would even like fight some things maybe even go up to level 10 mm-hmm. and then I could actually be useful to people like I remember there was like I remember just dumb things like there was this thing called uh, doing icon runs mm-hmm. where you get a group together and like you would get a group of people together and they have like each party member has to be in a specific site and mm-hmm. meditate and mm-hmm. then someone has to fight a golem and from the golem, you gather icons, which can then be 
destroyed for tons of experience and loot. Okay. And so I remember, like, I would get up to a level that I would be useful for doing that, and, like, you would just hear people shout, like, does anyone want to do an icon run? You'd be like, oh, I can do that. And then you would get cool stuff, and then I would die, and then I would have to do it all over again. I'd be really frustrated. Mm. That's crazy. I mean, like, text-based games in general are such a strange and frustrating experience, even when they're just single-player and you have a very linear progression, you know, through everything. I can't imagine how much even more frustrating on top of that it would be to like be interacting with other people who could kill you and who knew more about how the world worked and stuff like that um that's a great pick uh my pick is actually it's a much newer game although i was probably playing it only a couple years after you played that game because i think i was in maybe eighth grade so i was you know 12 or 13 um and the game is called uh, command and conquer red alert 2 Oh, yeah. Which is a fantastic example of a game genre that, like, uh, kind of is not really as popular as it used to be, um, which is the uh, strategy uh, game, the kind of an overhead real-time what? strategy, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Real t- I mean... I mean, StarCraft. Well, but StarCraft Basically, only StarCraft. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I mean, like, the League of Legends and... Uh, Dota 2 MOBA scene has mm. certainly usurped it. Mm-hmm. But StarCraft 2, I think, does reasonably well. well. Back in the day, you had Total Annihilation. There were tons of Command and Conquers. Like, World of... I mean, sorry, not World of Warcraft. Just regular Warcraft, I think, started out as a RTS game. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like there was a lot more variety in, uh, in, the, uh, in the world. But... Uh, Maybe that's just uh, rose-colored glasses. But I, you could play uh, Red Alert 2 against anyone, and I certainly did. Um, spent a lot of time, you know, getting matched up against random players, but I almost always got destroyed immediately. I was not a particularly good Red Alert player. Um, but what we mostly did was uh, the game came with two discs, and one yes. disc was for, like, the Russians, and one disc was for the Americans. And uh, my friend would take one, one disc, disc to your friend. Uh-huh. I was would, that friend. <laughs> he would go downstairs, and like we had, we had, we would either play like one computer at my house and one computer at his house, or we also had two computers in my house, and so like we could play like totally local area network just between the downstairs and upstairs. But maybe going through EA servers, I don't remember exactly whether it like made a direct link between the two computers or whether it went through the servers or whatever. Oh, um, back then, I had LAN capability. Just spent hours and hours and hours you could, you could hear the other person that was the best if like they were in the house you could hear them and also like when you would do something particularly devastating be like no <laughs> or like <laughs> um yeah it was it was really fun red, red Light 2 is a great a great game it was like kind of had a weird backstory where like the USSR is like attacking the United States, but then also somehow there's like a psychic dude who's like the head of the USSR, the Soviets, and he can like control people with his mind. And like you, as the United States, like you have these it, all kinds of crazy weapons, like people who can like you know freeze things in time and destroy them that way, and you know tiny little tanks and planes and stuff. Oh uh, sure, yeah. But it was yeah. really fun. And I have lots of memories of it. It, it was the either the greatest move ever or the dumbest move ever to, to make bootable versions of the game on each CD-ROM because it meant that to play with one other person, you only had to buy one copy of the game. Right. Um, and so that's well, mostly how we played. We just traded these CD-ROMs around between like five or six of us. Yeah, it was a really, it was a great game. I really liked it and I was really... Uh, 
excited for Command and Conquer 3 um, to the extent that in like the 7th or 8th grade, I remember spending a lot of time on like Command and Conquer websites waiting for Red Alert 3 to come out, um, which it was ridiculously delayed. Like Red Alert 2 came out in 2000, and I think Red Alert 3 came out in like 2009. Um, so it was a yep, long time. It came later. out um, when we were seniors in college. Oh yeah. So I was actually, it. <laughs> when I was in the, when I was in like the eighth or I think it was in the eighth grade, um, my friend and I like were on this website and we thought like it'd be so funny if like we wrote in and told them like a bunch of fake stuff that's going to be in Red Alert Three. So we like oh, made wait. up a like a persona we're like we're a programmer like at westwood and here's a bunch of stuff that's going to be and we like made up a ton of stuff and sent it off to the webmaster of one of these websites and it was like the first time that we really realized like that like uh people could like find you on the internet like it was before you could just like google people and that was not like a thing that people did or that you really realized people could do but this guy like wrote back to us and he's like, I think you're 17. I found your cross country scores. Like, <laughs> I don't think you work at Westwood at all unless you're very young, but I've never heard of you. I've visited one of the Westwood places. And like, he was like really, really angry that we'd submitted this fake tip, but he put it up on the site. It was there for a long time. So I think we've, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, on the podcast, maybe possibly it was like very formative or very like hilarious experience. I'm trying uh, to see what episode we would have brought it up in. Oh, it might have might have been in our history of gaming episode. Oh, maybe you're right. Hmm. Yeah, tough to say. Anyway, if I've told this story on the podcast before, then people can forgive me. But it was very creepy, and we were like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that he this happened, and this creepy guy has uh, has found us and like basically like doxed us." But but before that was even possible it was before google even existed or google was still like a stanford project that no one knew about so he like went on alta vista and found like my friends cross-country scores that had been reported in the local paper or something like that it's really not cool actually now that i think about it we were just a bunch of kids she just ignored us but i don't know maybe he was desperate for stuff to put on the website because he stuck all our stuff up there yeah, I'm surprised that, like, he found out you were lying and then posted it anyways. Yeah, that makes no sense whatsoever, actually. Uh, Well, to be fair, well, it just it contributes to the long, shitty history of gaming journalism. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes perfect sense. <laughs> What? what? What are you doing? What am I doing? I'm doing, I'm doing my laundry. laundry. I, last time you did it, you turned everything blue and red. Because I was washing the, the 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 American flag, my my flag. No one washes the flag. Not no anymore. No one washes the flag. All right, laundry sheriff. You know what it is I love about being Spider-Man. Okay? Yeah, I know. Costume gives it away, huh, Max? How do you know my name? Your badge. Oscorp. Nobody knows my name. I'm, I'm a nobody. Hey, lick that. You're my eyes and ears out here. Yes. Stay out there. So, I... When Amazing Spider-Man 1 came out a couple years ago, 
We did not have the chance to talk about it on the show. Um, but I would say that the short... Did we not? I don't, I don't think so. I guess we just had a lot of conversations on Gchat about it. So, anyway, the, but the short, kind of like the summary of, of our opinions was that I really hated it and you kind of liked it. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? Yes. Um, so I'm interested to hear, since we had such a divergent opinion, what your opinion is of this film, because, spoiler, I really really hated this movie you oh interesting <laughs> so I'm interested, uh, but not what, surprising if you didn't give like me your, the first one give me your like your your high level overview of your opinions of this movie um it was certainly flawed but i still enjoyed it but yeah if you i mean if you didn't at all enjoy the first one you probably you probably weren't gonna enjoy this one mm-hmm. either um I think it's. I think overall, it's probably even weaker than the first one. I agree. <laughs> Although there, are, I think there are moments in it which are really well done. So I mean, I guess let's let's spend just a moment here talking about what's good about the film before I begin to complain and don't stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are fantastic in the film and their chemistry is perfect like they're dating in real life so i guess it kind of makes sense they were also adorable on saturday night live when they were making fun of this movie and they are adorable in the film they have really 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 good chemistry together and just um seem very natural and perfect so i I thought that the definitely the the performance by the by the lead actors in in those roles is definitely the strongest thing about the movie by far I've I've said to you before, but I guess since we've never talked about it on the podcast, I think Andrew Garfield makes a much better Spider-Man mm. than Tobey Maguire ever did. Um, I don't know. I, I I have major problems with this iteration of Spider-Man, but it's really hard for me to figure out whether they're due to Garfield's uh, performance or just due to the way that Spider-Man's written. I think he's a little bit too much of a like a cool asshole instead of being like a nerdy, you know, but I think that's probably more a problem with the writing. Um, but Spider-Man has all like Spider-Man has always been kind of sharp. Mm-hmm. He's got like a, like a wit to him that I and, guess yeah. Maguire didn't quite have that. Like Maguire probably. And I mean, that plays, I mean, I think you're looking at um, Garfield more as Peter Parker. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is what you're lacking, and I agree. Yes, I agree. Toby Maguire pro- played that sort of, um, like, uh, schmucky, outcasted kid better than Garfield does. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, as the Spider-Man franchise, as, like, the story progresses, like, he naturally kind of sheds that. Yeah. And, like... Tobey Maguire kind of tried. We saw that in Spider-Man Three. He kind of tried to be smug, and that did not work out at all. Yeah. Oh, my other my my big question is: after the bad taste that Spider-Man Three left us, were would you have been more inclined to see um, a reboot as they did of the franchise, or a Spider-Man Four? I don't think we needed to see Spider-Man's origin story again, and I have major pr- 
problems with the way they've handled the origin stories in both of these movies. So I think I probably would have just have liked them to recast the film, recast the role, and and move on. Um, and I also think Amazing Spider-Man. I mean, I'm sorry. I think Spider-Man Three makes uh, looks like The Godfather next to both of these films. Um, oh, I disagree. I think Spider-Man Three is much worse than either of them. I think that I think that it left a bad taste in your mouth because you had high expectations for it. But I saw it again relatively recently, and it's actually not a bad movie, barring the one scene where he strolls down the street, you know, snapping his fingers and stuff. I actually think a lot of the problems in Spider-Man 3 I had, uh, well, not a lot, but many of the problems come through in uh, this movie. With, like, Amazing uh, Spider-Man 2. It it is similarly overstuffed with villains. Most, yeah. Like, the movie runs two and a half hours long, Mm -hmm. and it... There's just so much that did not need to be there. Yeah. Um, and I was actually also thinking, like, um, I don't think, like, all of the movies have portrayed, tried to portray um, Spider-Man's uh, villains in this, like, weird pseudo-sympathetic light. Mm-hmm. And I just really haven't cared about any of that since probably the first Spider-Man. I think that the best villain in the Spider-Man universe by a really long ways is Doc Ock. So I kind of disagree. I think Spider-Man 2 um, is definitely the strongest Spider-Man movie that's existed so far. And I found Doc Ock way more compelling than like talks to the mirror Green Goblin Willem Dafoe from the first film. Um but um, I, I do agree that Spider-Man's, it's, it, Spider-Man is, for whatever reason, I don't know whether this is a problem with the comics, because I haven't read a lot of the comics, but the movies at least have like been really obsessed with showing the origin of the, the, you know, it's always like a normal person who gets some kind of great power and goes insane, and they want to show yes. that whole process. And I don't and really understand I just, why. I don't care. Like, you know, when, when, the, when the Joker show, shows up in The Dark Knight, like, he just kind of strolls into the movie. We don't get, like, a backstory where, you know, there's kind of rumors and hints and things, but we don't watch, like, the formation of the Joker. He just walks into the movie, and we accept that he's the villain. Um, exactly. I don't really think that we need... And they all get their powers in a really similar way to Spider-Man, like, by some kind of industrial accident, or, like, Oscorp is apparently, like, the most, you know disastrous place on the planet because it just keeps spinning off villain after villain after villain after villain <laughs> with like superpowers um but yeah i i i think but they've it, done this in like every movie and it's just like it's i don't think it's like really ever worked for me no me neither so um, on my list here in my notes i have um things i liked and then things i hated and the things i liked list has two things on it it has Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's chemistry and that scene near the beginning where Spider-Man fixes the kid's science fair project. Um, oh, Because okay. I think that's like quintessential Spider-Man. Like that's a great Spider-Man moment where like he like helps the kid and like, you know, reaffirms his like interest in science and using his brain and stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, oh, I also quite liked the opening fight scene with the rhinoceros before he becomes the rhinoceros where Paul Giamatti is like, uh, you know, stolen that that uh, truck full of the truck full. I, yeah. I think it was. I mean, I liked that scene. I just it was really 
funny and weird that they made like the plutonium like explosive for some reason <laughs> it's plutonium i mean come on that's like probably no more dangerous thing on the planet than plutonium I- if i'm going just off of movies <laughs> Um, but then my list of things I hated has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 17 things on it Uh, impressive (laughs) so uh, there were a lot more things that I hated than I liked about the film and I think that but all of the things that I hated spring from the same place the people who made this movie who wrote this movie who directed this movie um, who produced this movie I assume uh, they didn't know what story they wanted to tell, and they didn't have any confidence in the film because of that, and so they just tried to paper it all over by throwing more stuff in there. There's no actual story in this movie. Like, plot events don't flow logically from one to the next. Characters don't act in ways um, that makes any sense, and it makes the whole movie just kind of lurch from scene to scene in this weird way that um, I found really distasteful. So here's just a sampling from my things I hated list, um, just in no order whatsoever. Um, you could take Electro out of the film entirely, and it would have no impact on a single thing, except there'd be two fewer fight scenes. It has no impact on the plot, really, whatsoever. Um, uh, both of Peter Parker's parents died, but for some reason he only cares about his dad. He's like really obsessed with his dad. He never says the word mom in the whole movie, even though his mom also died at the same time, and we see her die in the opening scene. Um, I really, really hate what they're doing to the backstory of Peter Parker with his dad and everything. So, first of all, it's not like Peter Parker needs more daddy issues. Like, he's already (laughs) got a daddy issue with Gwen Stacy's dad and Uncle Ben, and now also his own dad. Um, And it's just, it's a lot of disapproving father figures, (laughs) and I don't really know why they felt the need to make three of them. Um... But uh, I really hate what they're doing with his dad because they're basically destroying what's great about Peter Parker is that he's like an everyman character who um, came into his powers accidentally and has to kind of figure out what to do with them now. Like basically, first of all, his dad works at Oscorp and then is also responsible for the spider venom and then is also encoded to his own DNA so only people of his bloodline can be the Spider-Man. Like that, it, it makes... It makes it just another chosen one film. Like uh, you didn't see the the uh, Lego Movie, uh, but the Lego Movie was a a brilliant parody of this whole kind of like um, chosen one plot line that movies ha- are going with these days, where uh, you know the characters like selected by destiny and stuff like that. It just it just makes his back whole backstory totally uh, dissonant to me. Um, so I really hate everything that they're doing with that. I think that. it's really weird that they're trying... They're doing all of this, like, uh, story building with, you know, like, the history of his family and then, like, uh, uh, that guy at the end of the movie that breaks out, Paul Giamatti. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, like they're, tr- they're, like, trying to emulate, like, this movie continuity that like uh i guess the marvel universe has sort of really been able to capitalize on but yeah i feel like like the the scene where he goes to the abandoned uh subway station and finds that video of his dad like i don't care no no me neither i don't care about any any of this like foreshadowing or like uh like quote unquote like plot building of this weird overarching story with what's going on that doesn't have any payoff in this movie 
I like the idea that that video was what his dad was like trying so desperately to upload from that plane in the beginning because they make it seem so important. Like the whole first 10 minutes of the film are this fight scene on a plane between like an assassin and Peter Parker's dad. And also like just on a fundamental level, like nothing in this movie makes any sense at all. So like Peter, or what's his dad's name? Osborne. I mean, um, Uh, Richard Parker. Richard. Richard Parker is on the run from Oscorp. So he takes a, private jet to lake geneva like how does he pay for a private jet isn't spider-man supposed to be really poor but then they also live in this beautiful brownstone that does not look like uh you know it should be run down at all but then his mom is like works as a nurse to put him through college but like nursing does not pay very well like nothing about like on a fundamental level nothing about the movie makes sense whatsoever and which is like nitpicky except for the fact that it's so glaring and weird that um, it, it it really draws me out of it. So, like, somehow Richard Parker has commissioned a private jet to fly him to Geneva where he's going to subsist on God knows what while Oscorp sends assassins after him. Um, but he doesn't get there because the assassin attacks him on the plane. And while the assassin is attacking him, he's, like, trying to, like, his, his, his laptop keeps getting, like, closed. And so he has to, like, open it and, like, restart his upload, which I just is, like, such a... That was such a horrible scene. It's such a horrible scene where it's, like, <laughs> totally drama-free. Like, he's waiting for, like, a progress bar to go across the screen. I thought it would be hilarious if it got to, like, the very end. Like, the progress bar always gets, like, really fast through the first 95%. And then, like, the last 5% takes, like, an hour. And he's just, like, battling this guy the whole time. Um, but then apparently all he uploaded was like the video, like a YouTube video basically of him telling uh, Peter how much he loves him. Um, because when Peter eventually finds that subway car thing, like that's the only piece of useful information. Like it's a, it's a lab, it's a scientific lab full of data. And the only thing Peter Parker does is walk into it, watch a YouTube video and walk back out. Um, but, um, yeah. Like, it just doesn't... Like, nothing in this fucking movie made any fucking sense. Like, Gwen Stacy is, like... Is she... She's just graduated from high school. But then how long is supposed to have passed between when they graduate and, and break up and when, like, she finds out that Peter's been stalking her for a long time? Because, like, she's somehow, like, now applying to Oxford. So has she gone through college and graduated again? Uh, what's Peter Parker been doing this whole time? Is he going to college? We never see him doing anything. Um, like, I, I couldn't figure out the timeline. Like, what's happening here? Like, you know, she's applying to Oxford, which is like a graduate. She's like, like a Rhodes Scholar or something, which is like a graduate program. So he's he's been stalking her for four years. Um, I don't know. Like, just, it's just, it's just... It, it, stuff like this shouldn't matter. I'm totally willing to forgive little plot points, but there's just so many of them, and they make so little sense that it becomes overwhelming and and baffling. Um, like she gets offered a scholarship and like doesn't even pack; she just goes straight to the airport. Like who does that? That was really funny. <laughs> um. Anyway, these are nitpicky problems. I have overarching large scale problems too. At the beginning of the film. Peter Parker is so traumatized by the death of Captain Stacy in the last film that he hallucinates him everywhere, looking at him disapprovingly. And the reason why is because Captain Stacy was afraid that Gwen was going to die because of Peter, like that Gwen was going to be in love with Peter, and so he was going to die because Spider-Man would be put in danger. Um, 
And so that's why they break up in the beginning of the film. It's why he stays away from Gwen Stacy for the whole movie. And then they get back together and Gwen Stacy immediately dies. Like a cool spoiler for Spider-Man, I guess. Gwen Stacy dies. It's like the most famous thing that's ever happened in comic book history. Um, and so what the takeaway from that should be is that Captain Stacy was totally right and Peter Parker fucked up really big time, and he made a mistake and should feel guilty about it, but we don't get any of that reckoning. Peter Parker does not actually express any guilt at all. He just stands by her grave and looks sad for a couple seasons, and then he like watches um, her graduation speech where she gives him some vaguely coded message about not feeling too sorry for yourself, and then he just goes and becomes Spider-Man again. There's no actual reckoning with the fact that he did exactly the thing that he yeah. was so afraid that he was going to do. Um, and I think it just makes Gwen Stacy's death like a cheap stunt, basically, that means nothing. Like, there's like 30 seconds of screen time between when she dies and when he puts back on the suit and goes and uh, fights the rhino guy. Um, I agree. Um, I think I had me- I mentioned to you before, like... I was keenly interested in how they would handle the death of Gwen Stacy mm-hmm. because, I mean, I I consider it like one of the most important moments in comic book history where the protagonist has immensely fucked up. Yes, yes. It, it's it's like the biggest failure mm-hmm. of a superhero mm-hmm. and huge consequences. And like the and I feel like the their resolution of it in the last like two minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. like it felt like that scene with the kid Mm -hmm. um standing up to the rhino like it feels really good yeah like in that moment but it's such a colossal waste of the the gravity of what of the death of Gwen Stacy and what that should actually mean yeah in the universe he like never grapples on screen with the fact that he did this. Like, we see sadness. You know, we see him be sad, but we like, don't we see like, guilt. Oh, he was not... He retired for five months, and, like, that should be... Yeah. Like, significant, but it's... In, in this movie, it's not. No, it really isn't. And um, it's it, we don't see anything that's happened in those five months that makes it... You know, apparently this is, like, the first crisis of the first supervillain that's, like, come back. I think what really the problem is that really um, the death of Gwen Stacy needed to happen in the first act of the movie, but they wanted to have more Emma Stone in the film. So they like invented this will-they-won't-they-break-up kind of thing that goes on for way too long in between all these other random scenes where the villains like slowly acquire their powers and maneuver into place, and then she dies in the last act because... like. According to some screenwriting book, you have to have a big death in the third act, and then <laughs> but there's no room for the character arc. Like the character arc is all squished into like a montage in the last like two minutes of the film. I mean, it, it almost would have been. I mean, it would have been better if all like the, that last two minutes was just cut off, and then we just moved on to a third film where he deals with this. Yeah, where it's like a cliffhanger but, almost. But no, but I feel like the people that made this movie didn't want to leave it on that note. Yeah. They wanted you to come out feeling good. Yeah. And it's what we ended up with. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, a huge waste of um, of this really kind of historically important and character important uh, moment in the film. Um, this the movie also just has like crazy kind of whiplash from scene to scene. Like this is a movie where it, it can't decide whether it wants to be goofy or like emotionally resonant or dark or gritty or like what it wants to be. So it kind of tries to do all of those, but like on a scene to scene basis. So like. This is a movie where, like, the main character, like, the the death of a main character, the, the tragic death of a main character is separated by about two and a half minutes of screen time from a scene in which um, the villain smashes Spider-Man into a bunch of pylons and it plays Itsy Bitsy Spider. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can have those yeah. both in the same film, but they need to be a little bit longer apart. Like, when Electro's, like, smashing him around inside that power plant and the things, the pylons that he's smashing him into are, like, the, you know, itsy-bitsy spider went up the water spout. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is... Yeah. And then, like I said, it's not a, such a big problem except for the fact that then, like, 90 seconds later, Gwen Stacy dies and the movie expects you to be sad about it. And it's like, no, you haven't, you haven't set this up. Like, you haven't done the groundwork that you needed to do for this to be uh for this to be a major moment um and i i i think that it, so i was talking about this with satako who also saw the film and she was kind of calling me a hypocrite a little bit she's like lots of movies don't have a strong thematic like through line and lots of films like have plot holes and stuff like that and you love them anyway um and she was like, you really liked Thor 2. Like, what was the theme of that movie? You really liked Spider-Man, or Star Trek Into Darkness, rather. And now, it's true that maybe... I don't know quite why this these flaws in this movie bothered me more than flaws in other movies. But I, I think that it comes be, because of two things. Like, first of all, it feels like such a cash grab. Like, it really feels like Sony's just making these films because it has this property and they don't actually understand the core of the characters or anything like that. Um, and also because the film does so many things like almost right. Like again, <laughs> Garfield and Stone have really great chemistry. The film looks really good. Like the special effects are fantastic. There's a couple yes. of really, really great fight scenes. Um, it was filmed in 35 millimeter film, which is like a little bit unusual these days. And it looks like really, really, really good. Like the, the picture is just like really pops and, and is really beautiful. Um, and and so it's frustrating to see a movie where they do so many things right, but then just have no idea. It's like it's almost like the film. It like it's like that like old thing like you know like quacks like a duck walks like a duck. Like it looks like a good movie and it feels like a good movie, and it's only when you actually like think about it that you realize like oh wait this is like not actually a good movie. It's like a really 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 well made like shitty movie. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because I really like Spider-Man. And so, um, the scene, like, and the the fight scenes are great. And, like, I really like how Andrew Garfield portrays Spider-Man. And his interact and his interactions, especially with, uh, Gwen Stacy. And that's, I mean, and that's, like, what I enjoyed. And there's a lot of crap that I that was wasted and it was two and a half hours and I felt like it could have been cut shorter, but um, I got to see what I wanted to see and I'm okay with that. I was not expecting it to be great like uh, Captain America 2 was mm-hmm. and it wasn't and I'm 
I'm perfectly fine with that as a summer movie. I think the, the other- fight scenes look great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fight scenes did look really good. I think the other problem is that that I have with it is that they spend so much time undermining the core qualities of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man as a character. Like, for all of the problems with the Raimi Spider-Man films, I always felt like the the writers of the movie, Sam Raimi and, and his collaborators who wrote the movie, like, understood who Spider-Man is, even in the third film, which, as we mentioned, is not very good. Um... But I just felt there were so many things in this movie that made me feel like the writers of this movie don't know, don't understand Spider-Man. Like, at one point, he has to, like, watch a thing on YouTube about how a battery works. Like, Spider-Man is supposed to be a genius. He's supposed to be, like, a wonderkin scientist kid. Like, really, really smart. This guy does not learn about batteries by watching YouTube. Like, it's (laughs) it's like a little thing. It's like a little moment in the film, and but it's just so... It, that was really weird, and it didn't really do much in the film either. No, no. And the, the whole concept of how Electro works is like really does not make any sense to me. Because oh. he's made of electricity. Why does shooting water at him like extinguish him like if he were a fire? Like if you shoot Electro with, with water, he should just be now covered in a superconductor. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of questions. Like, the, there was a time that he goes in, like, the socket. Mm-hmm. But, like, oh, yeah. isn't he wearing, like, clothes? Like, how does he... <laughs> and then he has, like, that that whatever capacitor thing on the side of his head at the end of the movie that you see. Like, mm-hmm. but shouldn't that have, like, not gone through? Like, I don't... So in this I... film, Gwen Stacy seems like the genius, which is, you know, something I approve of. I don't know if she was like that in the comics or not, but I like the idea that she's, you know, smart and she's somehow working at Oscorp, even though maybe she's a college student. I can't quite tell how old she is because I have no <laughs> idea how much time passed over the course of the film. Um, maybe she's graduated from college and it's been like five years that Spider-Man's just been creepily following her around. I have no idea because the film doesn't tell me. But... Um, they make Gwen Stacy into this genius, and then at the end of the film, she's the only one who can reboot the power system. That's her oh, re- I love reason. That scene. <laughs> her reason for being there, you know, her reason for throwing herself into danger is that she knows how to reboot the power system. She's been there before. She knows how this works. And she walks into the control room, and there's a like a switch labeled a reboot. Big yeah. <laughs> and then there's like this the 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 switch is locked underneath a little cover and the cover needs a key and she looks around and there's a dead burned guy who's literally just holding the key out to her in her fingers like you could be my dog and figure out how to reboot this system <laughs> you don't need to, like why make Gwen Stacy into a super genius and orchestrate the plot such that she needs to be there at the end because that's how she dies she needs to be at the power system the reason for her being at the power system, she's been there before and she knows how this works, and then have it be something so simple that a child could do it. Like, it's a big button that says restart on it. What the fuck? Like, <laughs> why did so you, amazing. Why did, you go, why did you go through so much work to make Gwen Stacy into a genius and emphasize that point again and again and again when her role could have been fulfilled by, like, a trained monkey? I really don't understand I don't understand. Uh, there's this whole plot at the end of the film where, like, these two planes are going to crash into each other. Um, uh, yeah, that was really weird, wasn't it? Well, the the thing that's weird about it is, like, the power goes out because Electro sucked all the power away. And then we spend a lot of time with these air traffic controllers and the pilots of these two planes as Peter Parker is fighting this guy. 
So you feel like Peter Parker should be really urgent to get the power back on because these planes are about to crash. But Spider-Man does not ever find out about the planes, even after the fact. At no point does he know that there were two planes who were about to crash. So, like, yes, he does save them, but it actually adds no urgency to his actions, and he has no idea that it's ever happened. Oh, my God, Ryan, this movie was so bad. It made me so mad. (laughs) I I walked out of this movie, like, shaking with anger. (laughs) It's weird how much the movie... It is weird how much the movie bothered me, and I don't know why. I see lots of bad movies, and I'm just like, oh, that was a bad movie, and I just move on. And I don't really know what it is about these movies that really gets my goat, but for some reason, they make me really... Like, their flaws make me angry. And I think that it must be that I feel like they're just wasting the talents of their actors. Like, I feel like they're just wasting so many people's talent and time because they can't get the the plot right. And they don't understand the character. And this makes me really worried because it's Kurtzman and Orsi who... Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman are the screenwriting duo. And they're responsible mm-hmm. for some films that I've enjoyed, like the Star Trek reboots, but also a lot of films that I haven't, like Watchmen and uh, all the Transformers films and uh, Cowboys and Aliens. Oh, God. Um, I don't know why I saw Cowboys and Aliens. Why did we see that? Yeah, because it had Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig. It looked, it looked good. Mm, I mean, no. To me, it really didn't. Mm. But I went with it anyways. Well, I think they're pretty shitty writers. And they ha- they fall back on the same tropes a lot in really weird ways. Like, this movie and Star Trek Into Darkness both had, like, magic blood. Where, like, you could save yourself by injecting some other person's blood into your body. Which I'm pretty sure there's no condition oh, yeah. except for... You don't have enough blood where injecting yourself with blood is going to make you feel better. Like, (laughs) um, but, uh, it really worries me because Orsi is now in the running to both write and direct the third Star Trek film, which, um, JJ Abrams is moving on to Star Wars. And so Roberto Orsi is going to be the, the director of the third Star Trek film, which just fills me with horrible dread because... I worry that he's going to take it even more in the direction of um, the things that I haven't liked about the first two Star Trek films and not in the direction of things I I do like about those movies. And so his handling of this of this franchise, the Spider-Man franchise, has, has got me really concerned. Should we move on to uh, In Your Eyes? Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, then the other thing that we watched for this week's episode is, uh, In Your Eyes, which was kind of a surprising film, um, in that I don't think many people knew it existed before it came out. Um, but basically it's, uh, written and produced by Joss Whedon and, and his production company, um, and directed by a a newcomer, I think, named Bryn Hill, who I don't think has done too much, uh, prior to this. Um, and it's basically, mm-hmm. it was it was released in an interesting way. So it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, um, but then simultaneously with that, they released it on Vimeo. So you can rent it from Vimeo for, I think, five bucks, um, and uh, which I actually had to pay twice because I rented it and then forgot to watch it, which I felt really, really you dummy. <laughs> um, why did you rent it and not just, like, why did you pay for it? I think I, was, I think I rented it and I was going to watch it that night, but then I got cut off doing something else or I... Went to cook dinner and then talked on the phone or something and then didn't have a chance to watch it that night and then forgot that it existed. Um, Fair enough. So it just doesn't seem like it, it would take that long. <laughs> like, when I was like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to plan to watch this later. I better pay for it now yeah. kind of thing. It was dumb. <laughs> 
Um, and so uh, basically the story of this film is that there's two strangers who live uh, kind of on opposite sides of the United States and they have the ability to feel each other's thoughts and uh, to uh, sense what they're... Not thoughts. Yeah, to, to, they kind of sense what each other are feeling are, in a way. And it's kind of a, yeah, it's a, like a sci-fi romantic comedy, I guess. Or a fantasy romantic comedy. Some kind of romantic comedy. It's not, well, it's not really a romantic comedy. It's like a... Like a romance film? Roman- romantic drama? Yeah, yeah that works. Because it's, like, it's not really... It's not that funny. Like, it would... It seems like a really good rom-com pre- premise. Mm. But there's, like, it's just, there's just no... I just don't think there's... They take they take the movie takes itself much more seriously than a comedy would. So um, you know we're big Whedon fans, which is why we were interested in this film. And he has had uh, little passion projects. Uh, I would qualify them at like this before that have turned out really really well. I think Much Ado About Nothing was one of the best films um, of last year, and that was again like a little passion project that he just made on his own with actors he knows and likes and cast and things. Um, Cabin in the Woods was a little bit bigger budget, but also. Again, like just something that he felt really strongly about. Um, not, I think, something that he was being pressured to do by, you know, outside forces for any reason. Um, so I was pretty excited to see this kind of crop up. And I guess I'm wondering what w- was your reaction to this film? It was kind of boring. Yeah, I thought this movie was really bad. Like, it, I just, uh, meh. it reminded me very strongly and not in a good way of the lake house. Um, yeah. Where like, why, why would you separate the two characters in your romantic comedy by an unbridgeable gulf and then have them just monologue at the camera the entire time? Um, <laughs> and also, you know, for like a Whedon. So I, I guess Whedon wrote this script when he first came to Hollywood in like 1992 and it was a spec script that he would show around to people, you know, when he was trying to get other jobs. Like I know he worked a lot as a script doctor in the early days, polishing, uh, you know, scripts other people had written and stuff like that. So I guess this was like his foot in the door type deal. Um, but it really just seems much more, um, much less polished and, and than his more recent stuff. And, and I think maybe he should have not, put it out there into the world. I mean, the lead actors, again, we have another movie where the lead actors are doing quite a good job of essentially acting to no one. Um, I thought that both Zoe Kazan as the female lead and Michael Stahl David were, were pretty good. Um, yeah. But the whole thing is just kind of boring. Like, there's not much conflict for a long time. Um, the movie is painfully slow. Um, takes really long time to get rolling and kind of set all its different pieces in motion um and just it's kind of just kind of dumb and not very good like their 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 their, uh abilities like so they can't think they can't sense each other's thoughts but they can't hear what each other is saying and see through each other's eyes feel what other people but they feel like i get strong feelings or something because, like, when one of them gets, like, smashed in the head with a pool cue, like, the other one falls to the ground. Um, yeah. And feels the pain. Um, but what this mostly manifests as is it just looks like they're having a bunch of, like, Bluetooth telephone conversations. Like, most, the most important way that their ability manifests is just the ability to talk to each other over long distances, which is a telephone. Like, yes. <laughs> so like, if they were holding cell phones up. Yes. 
And I think that's what most of the characters in the suit in the film assume they're doing because they just look like kind of crazy people, like wandering around speaking to the air for most of the film, um, in very public places like a coffee shop and without much apparent like care for what they look like to other people. Yeah. Um. So I, I think it's pretty rough when you know, the the main psychic ability of your characters is something that's actually existed in the world for a long time um, yes. as a do real you piece think of technology. This movie, do you think we would look at this movie differently if it came out in the early 90s? Probably because, I mean, at least, you know, cell phones were not as big then. And so right. it, their ability would seem more... Again, it seemed totally unremarkable that, like, for example, they would be able to talk to each other while she's sitting in a coffee shop and he's on his lunch break. Like, that is a situation when people call other people on the phone and talk to each other. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to be psychic to do that. You just need to have a phone. <laughs> um, and, you know, the film doesn't really explain ever why these two people are connected and that's fine i mean the the yeah it's kind of interested in i can see the themes that it's grasping for it kind of wants it to think about you know people who hear voices and the girl at least is, is quite mentally ill um even before or, or kind of uh, disconnected from her her psychic problems and so i think you know, there's a little bit of the beginning of am i crazy or what is they think what are these things i'm hearing and stuff like that and um Oh, that's fine, but not really developed. And the film spends way too much time on these like montages of just the two of them talking about nothing for a very long time. Um, and then at the end of the film, like I, I have a real problem with films where it seems like a happy ending, but then if you think about it a little more, you realize it's I totally not, it's, fucked. It's, it's a terrible resolution. <laughs> like basically, at the end of the film, uh, her husband, who's a, a total douchebag, because. Um, of course, she would be married to a total douchebag. Um, ah, he's kind of a douchebag. He's he's very uh, self-centered and dismissive, but maybe he, honestly he believes that he's trying to do the right thing because she yeah, well, is like, a crazy person. If you, if you, yeah, if your wife was already committed to a hospital before mm-hmm. and she starts talking to herself... And falling over at random times. Yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable. Yeah. So he basically has her committed to an institution to be under a psych, a psychologist's care, basically. And so he, the guy, the film spends a really long time setting up this plot where he's a convicted felon who went to jail because he was part of a robbery group. And then, like, these two old uh, comrades of his are trying to draw him back into that world. And eventually he just, like, steals their car and drives to the airport and gets on a plane and flies to New Hampshire where she lives and then steals another car because he can't rent a car because he doesn't have a driver's license, which how do you get yeah, on the plane? How do you get on the plane? <laughs> which makes no sense, but whatever, i would just skip over it. Um, he steals another car and get, leads the police in a chase until he gets to the hospital where they meet up in the woods and climb on board a train that's going to Canada. Going ostensibly to Canada. Ostensibly to Canada. So that's, you know, the big resolution is like they're finally together in person. They've met each other in person for the first time in the whole movie. Um, and they're in a box car on their way to Canada. With but 
and so the, basically nothing like the this like music swells like this happy music and they like embrace and kiss and like the train trundles off into the sunset and then the like it just the film fades out and the credits come up but like if you think about it for more than five seconds like these people are really fucked he's a convicted felon with at least two more grand theft auto charges hanging over him now um they don't have any money they don't have any identification they don't have any warm clothing they're in a box car and they're going to canada what's going to happen when they show up in canada with no money and no id like they're just going to be like hi like we're unregistered people like where are they going to what are they going to eat where are they going to live and then canada has <laughs> an extradition treaty with the united states i'm sure so at some oh, point yeah. they're going to get sucked up into the system and the authorities are going to realize like oh she is in a mental institution and he is a convicted felon who's broken his parole and then he's going to go to jail and she's going to go back to <laughs> she's going to go back to the mental institution like i don't understand what the end game was supposed to be here but it really did not work um they just try to create a happy ending by having these characters finally meet but they're totally fucked they are yeah i also don't get why they spent so much of the movie like building up um the guy is like oh this really smart guy who's not using all of his potential and then Mm -hmm. he doesn't no i guess he uses his like thievery knowledge to break her out of the mental mental institution well sure but i meant like there's like that scene in the beginning of the movie where it's like oh he actually got an a on that test and then like his parole officer even says like you, you know you were smart or whatever I mean, the the real problem is that these people have to be perfect. Like, you know, they, sure, they have, like, superficial flaws or maybe they're a little messed up or whatever. They keep making bad decisions. But, like, fundamentally, the film is not willing to make any of, either of them, like, a truly um, flawed person. They're both, like, charming and uh, beautiful and basically perfect for each other. And, it, it, of course, they would be together. Like, they're exactly the same type of person like i thought it was really funny when like you know they they are very scared to go stand in front of a mirror so that each one can see the other and they're very self-conscious like checking their hair and everything i was like how funny would it be if like one of them is movie star handsome but then the other one is (laughs) not an (laughs) uggo like that would be of really funny way to but that's not the kind of movie this is it's not like a slapstick comedy movie but that would be really funny. Um, I thought, and what I thought, what I thought would have been maybe a better ending is that he was never gonna have. It was gonna turn out that he never existed. Oh, so like she runs out in the woods and she's looking for him, and at one point she's like, "Where are you? I can't find you. Where are you?" And like, I was like, "Oh my god, that would be pretty brilliant. What if like she actually is insane and she's just made up this whole." imaginary friend basically and giving him a backstory and that's why his backstory doesn't make any sense and he's not really very good with the ladies even though he's ridiculously good looking and but then it's not true then he just stumbles out of the woods and i was like oh he is real fuck but wouldn't that be one of those great twists that you hate so much it would have been better than what actually happened which is true for the movie to just end really boringly also, have been a lot of setup for not very much payoff, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that the film got such good reviews. Like, 
Has it been getting good reviews? I mean, 67% of critics have given the film positive feedback on Rotten Tomatoes. Everyone on IMDb who left like a user review loved it. Maybe it's like a little bit of selection bias where people just really like Joss Whedon. Yeah. And so they like the dialogue, which is his normal kind of witty, snappy back and forth. And and I mean, like the, the dialogue between the two was mm-hmm. clever. Was yeah. Just there's there's... There's no substance in the film. It really reminded me a lot of The Lake House. I host a dinner once a month. We can do Saturday. It's not really a girlfriend type thing. You invite idiots to dinner and make fun of them? Okay, that is messed up. I know. So you told them you're not going? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Why can't you just suck it up, make fun of some idiots? Sometimes you have to do the right thing. So our remake this week, our, uh, our American remake of a foreign film, um, we watched two films, the French uh, comedy Le Dîner des Cons, which I think means The Dinner of Idiots, um, and the American remake Dinner for Schmucks, which came out in, I think, 2010. And yeah, and starred, I, think, uh, I think the French film like late was, 90s, released under, right? well, was released under the title The Dinner Game. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, Just in case you're looking for it. And uh, Dinner for Schmucks, which came out in 2010, and... Um, stars Paul Rudd and Steve Carell and a bunch of other kind of bit comedy players um, in a variety of roles. Um, I I think it's interesting, Ryan, you know, on the whole, throughout the remakes that we've been watching, um, relatively few of the remakes have managed to match or exceed their counterparts, in my opinion. You know, The Departed and Infernal Affairs may be kind of on equal levels. The Ring, the American version, did beat out Ringu, but pretty much all the rest, I'd say, well, Legite, 12 Monkeys, I don't know. That one was weird. But That's hard to compare. Yeah, hard to compare. But I think that the the original film has generally been better. Um, but nowhere, I think, was that more evident than with dinner, uh, uh, the dinner game and... Uh, Dinner for Schmucks. Like, I, I quite liked the French film. Um, it went on a little long, and there were things about it that I, you know, didn't exactly love, but at least it was a relatively straightforward comedy. But I really hated Dinner for Schmucks. I thought it was a, a, a very poor, a very poor film. Um, those are those are my opinions. Did you feel kind of the same way? What were, what were your, your opinions of the two films? Um, honestly, I do think, I think... Uh, the French film was better, but I I wasn't particularly interested in either really. Yeah. Um, like when I when I was uh, looking it up, I was surprised at how well received uh, the French film was. Mm-hmm. Like it's like like one like some like six nominations, blah blah blah, and it won three of them, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But I uh, it was okay. So- I did not think it was that great and dinner for schmucks the the remake was as you said i think he's uh, a bigger mess yeah it, it was pretty horrible um the plot of both films is that there is a a businessman uh, in the french film he's a publisher in the um uh, american film he's a stockbroker no he's he's he works he's for, not a stock he's broker. not a stockbroker um he works for like an investment firm or something what, what does he do he does um what do you call that like what Mitt romney did um where you buy um, companies and turn them into bad like companies asset yeah i forget anyway um 
and they have a dinner like a weekly or monthly dinner where they each person has to bring an idiot and then everyone makes fun of the idiot and then basically they give an award to like best idiot but the idiots never know that they're being made fun of they just think that people are legitimately interested in what they're doing so in each film the person kind of accidentally or coincidentally meets up with a um guy who turns out to be such an idiot that it kind of turns his whole life upside down and um kind of is like this whirlwind tornado of chaos and uh the guy's wife leaves him and like all this stuff happens and in the french film we never actually get to the dinner um it's, right. It's I, was really, I was kind of surprised about that. Hijinks that uh, happen before you make it to the dinner, which is, I feel yeah. like that's a very play, uh, and this was adapted from a play. Um, I feel like that's a very play-esque construction where, like, it's all about the setup and, and mm. limiting number of settings and stuff like that because almost the whole thing takes place inside his apartment. Um, and then in Dinner for Schmucks, they do make it to the to the dinner and, and kind of there's like a idiot off between all the different people it's a very mean-spirited premise um and both films kind of acknowledge that uh though maybe not quite to the extent that they should since we're also as the audience kind of laughing at these idiots watching the film um and uh the american film had some things about it that i really liked but the lead performance by steve carell is just it's steve carell at his worst I think like he's proven himself to be an actor who can hit emotional beats and really kind of um, carry a film in dramatic ways or, or bring some kind of humanity to these ridiculous characters that he plays. I think in, in four year old virgin um, in little miss sunshine in crazy, stupid love. He, he brings you characters who are like, are not perfect and they are funny in certain ways, but you know, they have some kind of humanity underneath them somewhere um, and then he also does these characters that are just idiots and who are annoying and self-centered and don't um, comport themselves very well. And like it, it, that's kind of the brick Tamland is like the stereotypical one for him. Um, and then of course Michael from The Office like started out as one and kind of went to the other, I guess. Um, mm. But I think this film is way too much Brick Tamland. Like, the thing about Brick is that he's only funny in Anchorman because he only has about five lines. Yeah, like, it's, it's like, like a little sprinkling. Someone just decided to make a whole movie about him. And he's not just an idiot. He's, like, uh, he's he's quite mean-spirited or or he, he does a lot of things just to kind of see what happens, it feels like, like a little chaos monkey. Um, and it's just... Dinner for Schmucks in general is a much broader film than the dinner game than the french film which is kind of dancing on the knife's edge of believability and stuff like that it's the there's a lot more just kind of slapsticky dumb broad humor in, in dinner oh, for yes. schmucks dinner for schmucks is much more absurd yeah but not in a way that works no yeah yeah um i did think that my favorite thing about either movie was uh jermaine clement as uh, the artist, what's his name? Uh, uh, Voyard. <laughs> um, Jermaine Clement in Dinner for Schmucks plays uh, the eccentric artist Kieran Voyard, who um, is like a quite a pretentious and self-centered kind of like uh, sex machine. Um, and uh, that was he was pretty amazing. He was extremely funny, um, and probably the best thing about either 
either film. Has Julie left you? Oh, Tim. I was always very attracted to Julie, and I still am. You must be broken. She's a wonderful creature. Stop. I have to say, though, Tim, I'm not surprised. Really? There's not a lot of monogamy in the animal kingdom. Not many animals mate for life. Penguins do. I've spent a lot of time with penguins, and they're really cool. And maybe you're a penguin, Tim, but Julie's not a penguin. She's a lioness. Don't try to mate a lioness with a penguin. Ever. Have you ever seen a mammal and a bird mate? I've never even heard of that. But really, like, that kind of flash of that one character or that one actor really giving it as all is not really enough to salvage the rest of the movie, which is full of people who you're like, like, how did you end up here? Like, why did no one tell you, like, that the movie that you're going to be in is really bad? Like, who tricked (laughs) Octavia Spencer into being in this movie? Um, (laughs) Or, like, all these other people. Like, there's some really funny people in this movie. Like, Paul Rudd is in it, of course, but then also Zach Galifianakis is in it. Ron Livingston is in it. Um, Kristen Schaal is in it. Larry Wilmore is in it. Like, there's a lot of really funny people in this movie, and I don't know how all of them read the script and were like, oh, yes, definitely, as comedians, we think this movie is going to be great. Like, they must have read the script and been like, oh, there's not actually that many jokes in this that are going to work very well at all and just stayed away. But, yeah. Um, the films were actually closer in plot than I expected them to be, honestly, because I know... Um, I mean, I had read before that, like, the director of the remake was like, oh, we don't really... Consider it a remake, even. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, I, like it's, it's, it's like inspired, inspired by. by. And that's what it said in the credits, inspired by. But, like, the actual... The, they hit a lot of the same beats, you know, like, especially in the beginning and the setup and everything. Like, they both can't make it to the dinner because they have bad backs. And yeah, they did the whole bad back. I mean, thankfully, they, like, dropped the bad back thing in mm-hmm. Dinner for Schmuck. Like, if they if they had Paul Rudd, like, hunched over the entire movie, yeah. it would have been horrible. <laughs> like, the poor actor who plays Pierre uh, Brochant in the French film has to spend the whole movie basically clutching at his stiff back. And, I mean, it works better in that movie just because, like, it's a much more compressed, mm-hmm. uh, it's a smaller time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like the the film that both of these films are trying to be is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which Uh-oh. also has a, um, you know, a, a kind of stiff, dour businessman who's thrown into close quarters with a lovable idiot who messes things up even though he doesn't mean to um but neither film can quite get there because first of all the idiot the the idiots are too aggressive in both movies like they don't just do things that are dumb they do things that are like aggressively unbelievably dumb and also because i don't think the characters come around fast enough in either story to the realization that they're really the assholes like it, it, in in neither the French film nor the American film do they kind of have that moment where they're like, oh, this guy like is useful or like he's a nice guy until very very late in the film. Um, um, and I think it's it's interesting that the French film really makes um the guy like a, a huge asshole. Uh, and, yes, which I actually think is a better. 
Oh, it, it definitely is. Which actually is better than Dinner for Schmucks, where he knows that he's being an asshole. He doesn't really want to attend because... They, they make Paul Rudd too likable. Yeah. And... So you never believe from the beginning that he would do such a cruel thing. Yeah. Whereas in the French film, like the guy like just legitimately is a huge prick and enjoys going to these and making fun of these people. Also, both of the films kind of confuse having odd hobbies with being an being, idiot. Yeah. Like I th- and I think it's a it's a problem in both films because it just seems really mean-spirited and also like uh like um like a non sequitur almost. Like the fact that the guy likes to make recreations with matchsticks like does not make him an idiot. That's a hobby that I can imagine many very smart people having. And same with the taxidermy and so in 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 dinner game the idiot, the way that they identify the idiot is because he's really proud of these recreations of famous architectural things that he recreates with landscape, with uh, matchsticks, rather. Um, and in Dinner for Schmucks, that idiot is identified because he uh, enjoys creating dioramas with dead mice in them, like taxidermied mice that he mm-hmm. puts into these diorama situations. Um, but but those are those are both hobbies that have nothing to do with intelligence. And... In Dinner for Schmucks, I actually thought that the mouse dioramas were quite uh, kind of cool. Like, if I saw that on, like, Tumblr or something, I'd be like, hmm, that's pretty oh, good, like, hobby. Like, <laughs> And I mean, like, building things out of matches, like, oh, it's yeah, fine. Not, I mean, whatever. Uh, like, like people Eiffel have, Tower, oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, it, said, it said it took him 346,000 matches. That's a lot of matches. I mean, he was a little into it, but... yeah. I think it was also important that um, the French film kind of showed... Well, it, it was just one line, but he said, like, when his wife left him, like, he fell into this hobby as a coping mechanism. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think that was uh, important in the sense that, like, if things don't go well for... I don't even remember the characters' names. Sorry. Brochant is the guy and Pignon... Is the idiot. Yeah, if, like, if, like, Brochant doesn't get back together with his wife, like, he, it, it seems like he can end up, like, mm-hmm. Pigeon, mm-hmm. is what I felt like that small line was trying to say, and it wasn't really, um, extrapolated on, and I guess that's okay, because the movie is really mm-hmm. very lighthearted, yeah. but in Dinner for Schmucks, like, um, uh, Steve Carell's character had been doing this, like, the whole time. Yeah. Like, he did that with his wife, and she hated it for some reason. Yeah, they do a much worse job humanizing the Steve Carell character in Dinner for Schmucks than they did in... Yes. And, again, I think that's where the film approaches planes, trains, and automobiles, which there's also a scene in that movie where you realize that, like, his wife, the wife of... I don't know when you've seen the movie last, but Del Griffith is the idiot in that movie, quote-unquote, played by John Candy. Um, And then... Like, at some point, he realizes that Marie, who he's been talking about a lot, like, has left him. And that, like, that's why he's so desperate for human contact, is that, like, his his wife has left him, and he, he wants to be a friend of anybody, even wants to be around people. Um, and, like, they they come close to having that same kind of, like, affectionate, like, emotional underpinning to the idiot in, in the dinner game, to, to Pignon, but... Again, they can't really get there because he's so 
unbelievably like dumb and and just kind of wipes the whole thing away um yeah i don't think the french film was like a masterpiece by any means i thought it was you know amusing i thought it got much better once they uh ushered in someone else to laugh at the absurdity what's going on oh um i I thought it got a lot better when leblanc showed up to laugh at everything that was going on and i really liked the scenes where he was just wandering around laughing at his his uh at, at the absurdity of uh, at the absurdity of how how much the guy had fucked up his whole life. How, yeah, how Roshan. Yeah. Um, one thing I kind of didn't like um, about the uh, about that though was like LeBlanc and Brochant kind of made like they resolved their differences really. Mm-hmm. Really Suddenly, quickly. I kept expecting yeah. him to turn on him and have it all be a trick, but he never did. He just legitimately, yeah, wanted to help him like recover his uh, his wife, which did not make much sense. No, it it like because like Brochon is like an actual asshole, mm-hmm. and I feel like the uh, redemption that he gets at the end of the movie, like making up with his old friend, and then I don't know maybe getting his wife back maybe not it's hard to say yeah he just kind of he just kind of gets a pass on everything it doesn't feel earned because he's like still a huge asshole Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or and then when dinner for schmucks like paul rudd kind of isn't an asshole yeah and then and then so and then things work out because like he's and yeah. but then I'm just like okay that's fine <laughs> like a, a guy who realizes oh this dinner kind of sucks and this job kind of sucks yeah it's like I could have told you that from the very beginning dude like so it's it's weird like both both of these movies like the like final act just falls flat just because of how they set up these characters yeah yeah or maybe not even how they set up the character how, how I don't know I just don't I don't know I did really like the performance of the tax auditor in uh, the dinner game. Oh yeah, he he, he plays kind of malevolent uh, bureaucracy very well. He's just wandering around looking for things to audit. I thought Zach Galifianakis is also an example of a role that is horrible. Like Zach Galifianakis at his worst in this movie, just being weird for no reason. Yeah, it was like. I didn't get it at all. Actually, the less that's said about the whole second half of Dinner for Schmucks, the better, because it gets it just goes way off the rails, and like it it tries to, it thinks it, it thinks it's Anchorman, but it's not Anchorman. It hasn't set itself up to be Anchorman, so it seems really weird when the movie stops making any sense at all. Um, I think yeah, it's like Anchorman kind of works because like. The main character, Will Ferrell, is is really absurd, mm-hmm. and so you kind of accept at all of the absurdity at face value. Yeah, but Paul Rudd like really grounds you in reality. Yeah, and like when everything else is when like Zach Galifianakis is being like, "Oh, I can control your mind." You're like, "Who is this idiot? <laughs> like, why would he have like? How does he hold down a job?" Yeah, yeah, like it 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 because like you're you have one foot like in the movie and one foot in ostensibly reality and it just it doesn't work you can suspend credulity 
when you know how far you're being asked to suspend it from the beginning. But it's really hard when you feel like you've, okay, you've given the film like a certain latitude to act in in these ways and then all of a sudden it acts in totally different ways it, it make it breaks the illusion that you've created it, it like it, it rejiggers your idea of where of where your suspension of disbelief actually is so like in anchorman like they've set it up from the very beginning to be an inherently ridiculous movie so when like a character gets burned by a deep fat fryer in a bus that when the bus flips over and then it's fine in the next scene like you're just like oh that's the reality we're in right now yeah but they didn't do that here. So then when a character shows up who claims to have mind control and then the Barry and, and Steve Carell's character is such an idiot that he actually believes that he's being controlled. Like, and just like, uh, uh, you just facepalm. Yeah. It's just not a very good movie. Anyway, um, so this uh, week's film, The Dinner Game and uh, Dinner for Schmucks was a recommendation from uh, Joe. So thanks, Joe, for subjecting us to these movies um to be fair uh, at least they were kind of short yeah that's true we we asked for suggestions obviously for our two mystery film slots and the second one we've chosen is going to be a suggestion from uh madeline friend of the show madeline who's been a, a guest on a couple of episodes um and she suggested that we watch the Nicolas cage film bangkok dangerous and its original thai incarnation so that's what we're gonna watch for next episode um so these both films are directed by the Pang brothers. So we'll get to see an example of a remake that's remade by the same uh, director. So that'll be kind of interesting. And uh, even though uh, the Rotten Tomatoes scores don't give me a ton of hope, I am at least looking forward to them. At least if I can just shut my brain off and enjoy some enjoy some action. So that's what we're watching for next time. Check out the 1999 film Bangkok Dangerous and its 2008 remake also called Bangkok Dangerous. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. Um, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back uh, soon. See you then. See you then. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Did I ever tell you that I wrote a... Uh, text-based game when i was in high school when i was a freshman in high school actually oh, that's pretty cool it was like an online one it was like a very simple basically i just like it was based on lord of the flies we had to do like some project based on lord of the flies for our final and so i like drew a map of what i considered the island to be and put like landmarks like you know the big rock and the had the parachute guy hanging from the tree and stuff like that and then i like divided it up into a grid and then, you know, when you started, you were placed on one aspect of the grid. And then most of the programming that I did just had to figure out, you know, if you click north, like what square did you end up at? If you click south, what square did you end up at? Um, it was it was pretty simple. And then I had to write like descriptions for each of the squares, like what you were looking at when you were standing on that particular square. And kept track of, you know, in a particular session, like if you found things, like if you found like Piggy's body or stuff like that. Um, mm. It was pretty cool. It was actually, it worked most of the time but um uh there was some bug in it where like every 60 or 70 moves like it lost where you were and it would just put you on a random square um and so like you think like you would i would when i first first programming i was like ah you'll never hit this bug but it turns out when you play a text-based game you actually like click 
you, you make a lot of moves, you know, like you move around the board quite a lot. And so like people would just be like walking through the forest and all of a sudden it would be like, you slide down a mud wall into the sea and you're eaten by sharks or like something like that. Like it's just really frustrating <laughs> for people. 